Hello and welcome back to the Interpretable Machine Learning Podcast. Today I speak to Sarah Hooker. She is a research scientist at Google Brain, working to make machine learning models more compact, fair and interpretable. In all the episodes of the podcast so far, my guests have typically discussed methods to interpret models trained on structured data. Sarah, on the other hand, works with deep learning models trained on unstructured data. As you might expect, the methods to interpret these models are very different. So it's been really good to talk to Sarah and expand the scope of the podcast. I think I enjoyed re-listening to the conversation as I edited this episode together just as much as having the conversation in the first place. So without further ado, here is the episode. I hope you also enjoy. What are the differences with the differences in, t- in interpreting deep learning models versus simpler models that are typically used on tabular data, structured data? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question for a few reasons. So firstly, thanks, Neil, for having me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> nice, nice to be here. But um, so I would say it's fascinating in some ways because it also marks the history of how we've progressed in terms of representing the world and machine learning. So um, tabular data is fascinating because firstly, you typically have uh, a a more dense representation to begin with. You've already codified a lot of your high dimensional attributes into columns. So for example, um, something like the height of someone you've already compressed all the information that we have about measuring someone's height and, and, and doing that and encoding it into just a single digit, which means that it's already fairly dense information. And part of the obstacle with so many machine learning representation techniques is the ability to take high dimensional data, very complex data about the world and to compress it to these very dense features. So when we have tabular data, it's almost as if we're already so far down um, uh, the the path, we're almost at the finish line. What that means is that it's already, um, there's already likely a notion of what these features mean. And it means you don't have to use as complex models because you already have almost a, a very dense embedding space for all this more high dimensional information. What does that mean? Going back to your question about uh, why this changes for interpretability. It means that, uh, firstly, we, we likely don't need models with as much capacity because a lot of the work has been done already in the crafting of the features. So we don't need to extract from a high-dimensional space. That means we can use simpler models like linear models, perhaps, or d- decision trees or random forests. And these typically are perceived to have inbuilt uh interpretability because uh, both have nice uh, attributes in terms of feature attribution. So you can go back and you can say, how much does this particular feature contribute? So if you were going to um, 
predict uh, someone's language ability. Uh, height actually might be a good proxy because you could imagine someone quite short who's like a three-year-old might not have as complex a language as someone who's quite tall up until a point because maybe once we're all adults, it doesn't really say as much. But you could imagine if you're trying to attribute height and you're, you're looking at um, uh, like kids, then you could say, oh, height might actually be a strong predictor because you already have this dense feature, it's easier. So how does this change when we look at deep neural networks? So almost the, the power of deep neural networks and the shift that we really saw in the 2000s through like um, 2012, 2013 was a move away from uh, fairly explicit function extractors to uh, arrive at these attribute columns. So things like hog filters, things like uh, SIFT, which are doing very explicit mappings to arrive at a more dense um, yeah. feature is this representation for computer vision that you're describing at the yeah. yeah so yeah. I, I i think some of this first really computer vision is in fact like a, a really good motivating example for this because computer vision is very uh, dense feature it's a very um high dimensional feature space so traditionally it's been very hard to reduce it to this far more compressed information that is useful in terms of codifying what we what we actually see as important. And when we saw this shift in the 2000s, a lot of what we've seen is um, uh, the move towards deep neural networks was in fact delegating to the model the decision about what features to extract. Whereas before we had explicit mappings telling, okay, extract, uh, in the case of like a, ho a hog filter or a SIF filter, extract essentially contours or places of big pixel difference. Now you're just saying to the model, extract whatever minimizes the loss. And this poses new challenges for interpretability because now you don't have explicit feature columns. You don't know what the feature columns are. And in fact, like the model is assigning what is important for the task. Um, and that means that it has changed the tools we use, but it's also why people typically refer to these type of models as black box models. And this is what poses uh, both this and the dimensionality of the problem. So you have so such a complex input space is what poses such challenges for interpretability. So yeah, overall, I guess, would you say it's a more difficult uh, task uh, compared to with tabular it data? It is a more difficult task because the dimensionality is much larger. So if you think about features, number of features, so going back to our height example, so height is a single feature. You have one attribute per example. Um, and uh, if you look at computer vision problems, you typically have a 299 times 299 times three pixels per image. So you have instead of one attribute Per, per example, you have quarter of a million attributes, per example, and that's only one example. So understanding how to map that to what is important to your final prediction, which is your dense representation, is more challenging to begin with, but also to understand what is important is challenging because humans ourselves, we don't align on what we think is important in an image. If I showed you an image and said, um, is this a cow? Um, you will probably, if it is a cow, you'll probably recognize and say yes. Um, but if I ask you why did you say that, it becomes more complex because we're not very good about articulating why we do certain things or why we're so good at extracting certain mappings. Um, and I think that's part of it as well is our notion of 
um, auditing models or seeing if they're aligned with human judgment is much more complex in high dimensional spaces because we ourselves are not quite sure of how our mapping works for some of these problems. And we may explain it, but it's um, our, our ex work has shown that human explanations tend to be highly inconsistent mm. <laughs> and to diverge a lot, even in disagreement with other humans, um, yeah. which, yeah, we're almost expecting our models to solve a problem that we ourselves are not particularly good at. We're not particularly good at explaining why we make certain decisions. Yeah, I find that a really interesting question. I guess it's almost like um, a critique of research into interpretability uh, because why is it, you know, if, if we can trust a pilot uh, to fly a plane who hasn't, we haven't, you know, looked at the neurons inside his brain, what, what can be achieved through interpretability methods that can't be achieved through like rigorous testing? You know, yeah, cause... you're raising a very important question, which is when do you demand interpretability? So one aspect I think that often gets um, is not nuanced when we talk about interpretability is perhaps an assumption that we always need interpretability. And that, uh, like any type of desirable property, like let's say we want interpretability, we want compression so it can be deployed to resource-constrained environments, the urgency and weight we give to it will really depend on a few things. So you've mentioned one of them. So if we have a model which has a lot of historical data, has been performing on many different input-output combinations for a while, uh, we may already have a good sense of the behavior of that model just from observing patterns over time. And that may give us uh, a sense of trust because we've observed enough patterns. And that's what you were talking about in terms of if we see performance over time, we may weigh less the need to explicitly know the mapping because we have a good sense of the robustness of the model. Another factor that impacts it is, for example, uh, the sensitivity of the domain. Like, so you mentioned a very sensitive domain. So that might increase uh, the reluctance to um, release a model that does something like you know, piloting a plane automatically without also understanding um, edge conditions. So a lot of the, the, the frailty of our deep neural networks are when the distribution slightly differs from the distribution during training. So something that a lot of uh, self-driving cars and other types of high sensitive domains like this are interested in are, for example, uh, climate changes. So if it rains, does the model perform the same way? Or night versus day. So And uh, also performance on different edge cases like objects. So the model hasn't seen many um, uh, roads other than like a few small towns where it's trained. Small deviations may cause frailty. And that's where the emphasis becomes more on you need more comprehensive stress testing and you also need attribution because often another difficulty posed by these type of domains is that it's not a single model. It's a series of models. It's almost a cascading production framework. So how do you disentangle behavior of a single model versus um, the series of models that all contribute to the final prediction? Yeah. I guess so far, um, we've mainly been sort of thinking about like the computer vision models. So I was wondering maybe... Uh, what are the differences in the challenges, uh, say, with natural language processing or like signal processing? And how does, um, is, uh, is it quite transferable from computer vision to these different types of 
problems that deep learning is used with or uh, is it almost like you're having to start again um, in these different areas? So it's a really good question. I would say that most uh, interpretability research has focused on computer vision and not for a particularly good reason. I would say it's mainly because we have uh, a degree of um, uh, looking, at looking at an image and trying to ask for well, what pixels are important feels intuitive to us. So a lot of interpretability research has focused there, frankly, because a lot of how interpretability methods are presented are does this align with human judgment? And so a very popular type of interpretability method has been saliency methods. So looking at what pixels are most important and what they contribute to the prediction. That being said, uh, in both NLP and audio, you face different constraints. So for example, if you look at audio, a lot of audio files are changed into spectrograms treated as an image problem, or they're treated um, uh, in things like WaveNet. And understanding what is salient, you may be able to identify parts of the audio file salient, but will that make sense to a human? So will you be able to then play back that combination of frequencies and you as a human be able to say, oh, that's why the model is relying on this. So there's that obstacle, but that's also why I suspect less work is focused there. So we do need new methods for domains like audio. And in NLP, a lot of um, the difficulty is diffuse attribution. So a lot of the methods uh, that are used for computer vision essentially uh, rely on ranking of pixels to identify what's most important. If you apply that to words, often because it's already a fairly dense representation, um, all words are contributing something. So the problem becomes, how do you find something coherent that aligns? And often the concern is it's not clear how to isolate an actionable problem. So there's been work thinking about how do we how do we reformulate some of these gradient-based methods in a way that makes sense for NLP. There's been work on using attention, for example, as a mechanism to highlight what parts of an input are particularly salient. Um, where there's work, there's also debate. <laughs> so I think one of the debates in NLP is, is this still rigorous if you use something like attention? There's been interesting work on that. But there's another type of interpretability direction that I think is important for things like NLP, where it's not often treated like a supervised problem, where there's a single classification target, um, is stress testing. So a lot of NLP work is focused on curating small data sets that stress test for different things. So one may be counterfactual based. So you switch uh, things like gender pronouns or certain um, combinations of words, and you try and see how the model behavior changes. And I think that's really interesting because that provides um, uh, stress testing is not uh, rigorous in the sense that you're going to be able to, with certainty, understand all model behavior, but it gives you uh, an understanding of the model decision boundary and how it's been trained. Something I actually really wanted to ask about, and this links back to um, a previous episode I had. Do you know um, Rich Caruana from... Uh, I do, yeah. He, uh, he was. Uh... Oh, he was. He was, in fact, the the first um, the first guest on the podcast. One of the things he mentioned is that um, in uh, deep learning, sort of um, a built in 
uh, interpretability method. So not like a post-training explanation, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's called like a neural additive model that he's working on. I was wondering, uh, is this a growing area of research? The, uh, yeah, the built-in interpretability um, rather than, a, so the glass yeah. box versus uh, black box. Yeah, it's actually a really good question for a few different reasons. So perhaps first, it's important to characterize that most work on interpretability has been post hoc, which means it's done after the model is trained. And then after that, we do all these acrobatics to try and interpret the model. Uh, intuitively, you can see this poses a problem for a few different reasons. But the main thing is you've trained a model optimized to minimize cross entropy. Um, or some other objective, but there's no constraint built in that's interpretable. So it's almost like we're acting surprised at the end, but to be fair, we haven't uh, explicitly optimized for that at all. Um, and it's almost, uh, the, the key problem is that it backs us into a corner. We have this model now where the, the training process is finished, and now we're trying to make all these assumptions about what the representation was that was extracted. And starting instead by baking in assumptions about what we see as interpretability, I think fulfills a few different, um, I would say, uh, areas of interest in how we articulate our desire for interpretability. First of all, it forces us to articulate it. If we bake it into training, we have to explicitly say what we're baking in. The second is uh, it's very achievable that because we haven't optimized for interpretability, um, we may be over-indexing on just one measure of performance, but there may be a nice trade-off that we can achieve if we're explicit about what we want. Um, and uh, the, the third is that I think that uh, in many ways, uh, this is an area which uh, is underserved by current literature. So uh, it's really lovely to hear that, there's, that Rich is working on this. Um, but I've been grumpy about this uh, also for a while that we need to spend more time um, during the model training process itself, because we also know that we can learn a lot about what the model finds challenging versus easy by looking at what examples uh, it, it becomes good at classifying early on versus what examples it finds difficult. So a lot of my work is focused on that. Can we actually surface these examples very early on in training? Because then you can treat those examples differently. Hmm. Something you touched on there that I wanted to ask about as well. You were saying you're slightly grumpy that uh, the research community isn't tackling like the built. If I'm am I right in saying they're not? You're grumpy that they're not tackling built-in interpretability, model interpretability enough. Would you say that the research community uh, in deep learning generally is paying enough attention to interpretability? So I would say there's a lot of focus on interpretability, but um, there's, so I think to take a step back, uh, when we talk about the focus on interpretability, it's more like what I think are interesting problems in interpretability. For example, interpretability in deep learning is a very new field. It's very young. It's very, uh, and there's been a lot of excitement about certain directions, but others are 
underserved. And I think that's what makes the research direction exciting. So I think partly that's um, a signal that it's a good time for a researcher to work on that when there's not as many people kind of inching it forward. It also probably speaks to the fact that there's not um, a good measure of progress in interpretability. So it's it, it almost seems to favor some problems and not others. For example, we talked previously about the fact that a lot of research has been focused on computer vision. Um, that, that isn't a very sensible allocation because all these domains are very important, but it speaks to the fact that research has favored a domain where alignment with the human ability to inspect is, feels a little more intuitive, which isn't really a scientific reason at all. It's just how scientists tend to weight other things when they choose their problems. And to the same degree, I would say, there's been a lot of focus on saliency methods, which are typically post hoc methods. So they're typically devised after training, and they may su suffer some of these issues from making assumptions after training that weren't present during training. So some of my work has been on isolating failure points and saliency methods that come from imposing all these judgments after training. Um, that being said, why I think uh, there's very exciting directions is that the field is very new. So things like thinking about how we can bake in constraints of training itself is really interesting. Thinking about having global rankings rather than per-example per explanations is also really interesting because per-example explanations are really targeted at uh, user use cases where the user wants to know for their explanation why did the model predict this thing? But if you think about a developer perspective or someone who's deploying a model, they don't have time to look at explanations for millions of data points used to train their model. And there, it's much more important that we have some way of globally ranking examples and showing a developer what are the most challenging examples that a model need, that the model had to classify. And that almost targeted human auditing time, which is a key problem in these high dimensional um, and large data set spaces. So there's directions like that, that I just think are, are really exciting right now hmm. um, and that are underserved. Yeah. I think uh, you're sort of touching on like the goals of interpretability a little bit there. And that's actually another sort of um, group of questions I wanted to ask you um, if that's okay. Cause I did uh, watch one of the talks uh, that you gave a couple of years ago when you were talking about like the end goal uh, of interpretability. And I, uh, I thought that was very interesting to think about. Um, and you were talking about perhaps um, for different users, there are um, different end goals depending on their uh, level of expertise. Um, so I was wondering sort of if I could um, ask the question back to you that you posed to the audience. And um, as a researcher, what would you say the end goal of interpretability um, for you would be? Uh, or perhaps for other, res other researchers as well, um, for example, at Google Brain? Um, yeah, I have no idea about what I said a few years ago or what was said afterwards. <laughs> I think this is alluding to the fact that different that interpretability has to be centered on who's using it, which means it has to be actionable. So I think um, a lot of what I try and emphasize and when it's interesting to do interpretability, it has to further your understanding in some way. So um, for, for example, a lot of the reason I've been interested in compression research is that 
compression is a really nice way to think about why we need all these parameters for models and like why we need to go so big. Um, and uh, that's a cohesive theme I look for interpretability for researchers, which is, can we gain insights into why we do certain things um, and not take them as the default? So for example, right now we have this trend that bigger is always better, but in fact, uh, our models are very inefficient in how they represent. Like my work on compression has shown that most of the parameters are used for a tiny slice of the data. So we're, we're um, devoting all these parameters in a very inefficient way. And that, for me, is a great example of interpretability for researchers because it prompts us to rethink why are we training representations like this and can we do things more efficiently? Um, and that has to be a common theme with all interpretability tools. It has to provide um, something that furthers your intuition of, about how models are learning to represent the world. Hmm. So, what is it for you? I'm curious as you like explore this space. Oh. Yeah, well, um, what I thought was if almost if you could achieve the same level of uh, if you could achieve full interpretability uh, in the same way that like statistical models are with the most um, and maintain all of the accuracy. So, you know, there's normally the trade off between interpretability and accuracy. So I was thinking with a problem with unstructured data, if you could achieve just as much accuracy as the most powerful, um, you know, ImageNet uh, model, and you could have it somehow being fully glass box, but I guess perhaps that's not possible in the same way that it's possible uh, with, ta or it's a lot more difficult than it is with tabular data. Yeah, because you're, you're like simplify. Yeah, I guess. And the reason um, I thought of that example, again, was from the conversation with uh, Rich Caruana. Oh, that the, excellent. What did he say? The sort of explainable boosting machines, um, they do achieve, you know, full uh, interpretability uh, and almost as much uh, performance as methods like XGBoost, uh, and light these gradient boosted decision trees on uh, structured data problems. So I guess, yeah, yeah but... Um, There's a few interesting threads there. So one <laughs> thing you're highlighting is just being able to articulate the trade-off, which isn't really true for a lot of interpretability methods that we use right now because they're post hoc. So we almost have these explanations and they pose assumptions, but we don't actually establish a constraint or an understanding of the trade-off it is if you bake in interpretability, how much do you lose? So there's something really interesting there because it also allows us to understand better this trade-off and even our personal preference where it lies on the spectrum. Um, I think it's uh, we have to remember that when we talk about interpretability, we're talking about interpretability for humans, which means mm. it's uh, we have various fairly aggressive uh, built-in priors to how we see the world, to how we extract information. And it may be different from how a representation extracts information. It's the same way that, you know, different, um, different biological organisms extract things in different ways. Like a hummingbird can see colors that we can't. Um, and yeah. I say that because 
the optima of having a perfect representation, a model that achieves a certain level of test and accuracy, but is interpretable to us, um, it may be difficult to achieve because it may be a fundamentally different way of representing the world. So mm. a good example of this is computer vision models do remarkably well in medical imagery. And a large part of that is that uh, our convolutional neural networks are able to extract pixel-wise differences that our eyes, frankly, can't, we don't have that contrast where we can take advantage of pixel-wise differences for a reason. We have log-scale vision uh, to protect us against subtle changes. So we don't spend our time looking at every single tiny thing that changes. It takes a noticeable change for us to register. But that also means that if we were to uh, bring convolutional neural networks closer to the way that we see the world, it would likely change the performance on tasks where you can gain extra performance by looking at small differences. Mm. And I only say that to bring up an interesting question, which is that we have biases in how we extract information that are biological. Like we have just constraints to what information we can see and hear and interpret. Um, so our desire for full interpretability at the same, at the same level of performance um, is intention uh, often for certain tasks. For others, it may not be. Um, it depends on the task. Something I, I wanted to ask about just on the, on the question of like the end goal um, generally of interpretability is almost like, are we chasing a moving target, especially uh, in research and deep learning in order the models are becoming more and more complex, it seems, um, and almost more and more difficult to interpret. Do you think that's like the, the case or? Um... So um, I think that the growth in, uh, so despite the growth in capacity of models, um, I don't, the fundament, some fundamentals remain very truly the same, right? Most deep neural networks operate on this premise that it's a full forward backward pass, that it's a global gradient update, um, that you have batch style learning. So in that way, um, a lot of the interpretability threads of research are centered around those common denominators. Um, what I will say is interesting is uh, multimodal models are likely going to demand an entirely different set of tools because there's common traits there with um, very common interpretability challenges seen in production environments where, frankly, you have uh, multiple models that are contributing to a prediction. So how do you disambiguate the explanation amongst those models and how do you understand um, both proactively and retroactively issues or critical failures. It's very difficult. We often treat in interpretability research, we treat the sandbox of a single model and we're trying to interpret it and a small, um, a small choice in academic data sets. But the truth is production environments are, are, are far more messy. And you may have cascading models where you have multiple models that take as an input 
the previous model's output. So that's already a fairly opaque representation. So it's not as if we can take the gradients back to the input space and try and interpret it. It's challenging. Um, but it also forms this question of attribution. So if you attribute across multiple models, what does that look like? And that I think are, are really important questions that we aren't really equipped to deal with as an academic field, largely because we've abstracted that type of complexity away because we still have so many problems even with the single model interpretation. But that's where I think directions like understanding what examples a model finds challenging and tracing that through a pipeline, that feels more feasible than, to me than this very severe constraint of, for this example, give me a complete explanation. Because that's actually a, a fairly, um, it's a, a fairly difficult task. And if we can relax that a little and instead ask what parts of the distribution model finds challenging, that feels more interesting to me. It feels like we can make progress there. Something I also wanted to talk about was the sort of the links, the way that interpretability links together your different um, research interests. And I, so you've already talked a little bit um, about the link with model compression. Could you maybe touch on some of the, the links with um, the other areas of interest, um, like fairness, for example? Interpretability um, is often uh, treated uh, in, in the same, uh, it comes up a lot in discussions of fairness, and I think not necessarily for a good reason, because interpretability is really just a tool to understand if fairness objectives are being met, the same way interpretability could be used to understand if robustness objectives are being met. I really see interpretability as a way uh, to understand if your model is fulfilling all these different criteria. I mentioned compression because I found compression to be a really useful lens of articulating um, uh, whether a model is meeting certain criteria and almost an interpretability tool in itself because you're asking, well, what are all these extra parameters giving me that I don't have with a smaller model and forcing, uh, a, forcing a justification of additional complexity. Um, and I think that's, uh, what are the best types of interpretability tool where you have a nice pedagogy to progressively modify the representation. So you compress, you remove a certain fractional weights each time. And as you do that, you ask what has changed. And uh, that type of research interests me because one of the hardest parts about interpretability is having an axis of comparison. So we have all these different uh, saliency methods, for example, uh, but how do you compare their relative worth? And how do you decide which one is reliable and which one is not? And I've done work in this area showing that you can craft uh, certain frameworks to compare if you have a prior of what your expected behavior is. But in general, it's a very complex task because um, understanding you have no ground truth, because if you had ground truth, you wouldn't need an interpretability tool in the first place. You would know what's important. So that's what makes it uh, really nice to find frameworks where you can articulate, well, I'm comparing to this because we know this is the full representation. This is the compressed. Um, but in general, my research is very multidisciplinary. A lot of my work has been about bridging subfields and understanding the interactions. Do you think that uh, interpretability is still useful, perhaps for researchers who are targeting um, performance? And 
I, I imagine in your um, research, you know, uh, within Google Brain, for example, um, are those uh, researchers um, drawing on some of the tools that you're developing? Uh, yeah, well, um, if we remember a lot of the early interpretability tools for deep neural networks were because we couldn't get interpretability networks to train. So there was a lot of gradient saturation and gradient explosion. And a lot of the first saliency methods were researchers trying to understand why this was happening in their networks. So understanding why models find certain things challenging or why we are using parameters in a certain way uh, inevitably helps researchers understand how they can build better representations. Um, I think concretely, a lot of my work on understanding how weights are used in networks and why we need so many parameters uh, helps to articulate, can we do more with less? Like if so many weights are being used to represent just a small part of the distribution, uh, let's just isolate that part early in training and treat those examples differently so we don't need such massive networks. So I think there's nice connections like that where we can adapt training based on the insights we have about what the model finds challenging. Um, in the wider interpretability field, if an interpretability tool is worth its salt, it's providing actionable insight. And so in that way, uh, one of the things that I often think is under um, appreciated about the goals of interpretability is to satisfy curiosity-driven research. It's to understand why things happen and why we do certain things. And that it doesn't get uh, articulated as much as perhaps the end objectives of uh, accountability to users or auditing techniques, but it's a core dimension of why people are interested in interpretability. It's to provide, to shine light on how is our model behaving in the wild? Um, and that can have all types of downstream implications because once you understand better why, you are in a position to better articulate, well, how do I want my representation to behave in the wild? Yeah, I've, uh, I'm sort of uh, quite excited perhaps about um, interpretability tools as a method, uh, almost like a new method of, scientific discovery um and i remember in your talk you mentioned there was um, a competition that OpenAI took part in which was to play a computer game um oh, against humans yeah. yeah um and the way that those dota players were um you know trying to learn from the model what what the the model had learned and if you could interpret the model uh how fantastic would that be for their understanding and a similar thing that had me thinking recently was with AlphaFold that if we could uh, interpret that model that would be a, an amazing step forward in um biology um do yeah i do you do you think that uh this is um this is the future at all or uh do you think yeah, that's slightly I mean, overambitious? No, I actually think it's less ambitious in stating that our explanation methods have to offer a complete understanding of the model. Um, I think it's a more realistic goal to expect that interpretability provides insight and some degree of added intuition, but that it's an augmentation layer for humans to interact 
rather than saying that an interpretability goals method is to fully explain a model prediction, because that's a much more difficult task, even though most research is focused on that. Uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a very, it's a far harder goal to understand you're doing it correctly than to say, let's create tools in which a human can interact with the model and prod with questions and prod with new data and understand how the model reacts, because that is much more in a dimension where we actually operate in the world. Like if you think about how we navigate the world and gain insight, even as we grow from being a child to an adult, so much of our understanding is also motion-based. We're able to move forward in time and see how things change and reorientate ourselves. And a lot of these techniques, which I think are quite powerful interpretability, are techniques where the human is able to engage with the model and prod and change the interaction and have this nice uh, intervention-based approach where you do something and you see the response and you update your understanding of model behavior. You mentioned this earlier because you said, well, what if you have a pilot um, that is actually an agent and you've seen the behavior for such a long period of time that you have a strong level of certainty? Um, Understanding input-output combinations is actually a very powerful form of interpretability, and I think we often minimize that. If we can do this over a period of time with enough flexibility that we can guide, um, it can be quite exciting. We've seen that with NLP models. So a lot of the prompts and the interest around prompts and responses in generative models um, offers a degree of interpretability and trust over time. Um, and that is pretty cool. Mm. Something else we touched on earlier was maybe sort of like the limits of interpretability or the fact that it might not always uh, be necessary. Um, do you, but then, do you think that is the case? Um, do you think that there are some, some contexts where um, there aren't high consequence and that interpretability um, isn't useful, um, for example, uh, perhaps with education, um, predicting whether a learner will answer questions right or wrong, or um, do you think even in those lower consequence scenarios, there still is um, an important role for interpretability to play? It depends how the model is used. So given your example, you're trying to predict if a learner will correctly answer the question or not. You could imagine a scenario where that model is used to sort learners into different classrooms based on ability. Uh, there definitely interpretability is needed. That's a high impact decision and um, it has prolonged consequences on human welfare because of where the student is placed. If that model is instead used to um, just store data and then compare with when the, the learner actually takes exams, it's not deployed, it's just more trying to understand how the model predicts versus the reality. There's a lot of places where that's done right now, and that's almost that period of time where you're trying to understand the model behavior and you're looking at input output. So you're looking, what did the model predict with that map? And you do that for many different years without deploying. Um, and there, uh, it, the goal is a form of interpretability in itself, right? You're trying to understand, well, how does this modeling of this problem correspond 
to actual student performance. And particularly if you're only looking at aggregates, so you're not looking at individual data. So it's not, you're not having any implications for the individual student. That can be useful because it can give us a sense of, can we actually learn this problem? Is it feasible for us to represent this problem? And there having um, a heavy emphasis on individual explanations isn't as necessary because you're not even looking at individual data points, you're preserving privacy and you're only looking at aggregate performance over time of that model. So you could understand that so much of how we emphasize interpretability has to be on the downstream impact. And in particular is human welfare at stake. So will this model make a prediction that will impact human welfare in a significant way? The same way that getting my recommendations wrong um, on, for example, a video sharing site, uh, yeah, it sucks, but is it um, the, the same way that I would scrutinize a, a ranking system which determined in what order I see a doctor or get a vaccination? No, it's not. And you have to take that into account because um, when we talk about training models, we have a finite amount of resources. So we, we're inevitably going to weigh things more heavily in certain settings than in others. The same way that if you have a production model, another resource constraint is you have to deliver predictions with a certain amount of latency, which typically means that having a massive deep neural network is fairly expensive. So that's another example of a different constraint, which is you need to be efficient, but they can have implications for how you do your training and what model you choose. And interpretability is another version of that. Uh, I'm quite interested in sort of the context um, that Google deploys models in. I guess it's incredibly wide again. Would you say that they're mostly quite high consequence and that's why Google uh, sort of is interested in this research in, in interpretability or maybe it's just um, you never you never know where um, research might lead and um, innovation like downstream and that's sort of the source of their their interest in in this area or... I think that Google is heavily invested in trustworthy ml in general so not just interpretability but uh, responsible deployment so things like robustness or things like fairness because, um, because you're serving a lot of users and you want to do the right thing. So I think most of my colleagues uh, in production settings are really interested in research that comes out because I think most, so if you talk to most practitioners right now, I would say the most common concern is they want to do all these things, but there isn't a clear roadmap right now for how to do them. So they want to deploy fair, interpretable, robust models. But the research fields are really new and doing this with high dimensional models is um, it's a difficult problem. So the reason why there's so much interest and in investment is largely because everyone wants to do the right thing. It's we need to get better at giving practitioners the tools to do it. If I go right now uh, to an engineering team, forget Google anywhere because <laughs> it's the same everywhere. Uh, the engineer is heavily invested in making sure that they proactively identify any issues with the model. The question becomes, how do they do that? And how do they do that within a feasible time frame? Because often there's not comprehensive labels for all the attributes that you care about. Often it's a high dimensional problem with millions of different data points. 
So we need to equip these practitioners with ways where they can actually feel like they can operationalize some of their objectives. And that's the big, uh, I would say, you know, zooming out challenge for interpretability research, but also for computer science. Um, and it's not Google specific. It's the it's industry wide right now. Some of these challenges. Actually, it's interesting. Some of the most sophisticated discourse around this is actually in finance because finance companies have been regulated to do this for some time. But even there, there's a difficulty in articulating some of the ways. How do we actually fulfill some of these requirements? while also making sure that we deliver models which represent the data in a sophisticated way. So super interesting problems, but also really interesting research directions. Like, can you use synthetic data if you're not allowed to use user data? Um, can you preserve privacy while achieving robustness and fairness? Uh, really, it's a really exciting time to be in this field because it's undersaturated in a lot of directions. Yeah. Do you think... Um that's almost a contrast to research in deep learning more generally, or do you even think there it's not saturated? Uh, so in, so in terms of... Just, um, I think, you know, there's a lot of hype generally around um, machine learning and deep learning, um, and perhaps even around interpretability. Do you think, but what you're saying um sounds like the opposite that perhaps there's more like low-hanging fruit uh, oh yeah i think the hype here. is completely merited for interpretability <laughs> yeah yeah it's an incredibly difficult problem and it's very new as a field like if you think about um so going beyond tabular data work in this field is you can basically cap it at a decade ago <laughs> So that's there's a lot of interesting problems for researchers coming into the field to work on. And I, I don't think, uh, I think the, the hype is merited because they're challenging problems too, too because they're non-trivial. There's no ground truth. You don't, you don't actually know for such high dimensional spaces what's important. Um, but also uh, you need to create tools which are efficient. So many of our interpretability tools are very computationally expensive right now. So we need to bridge the gap in tooling and make them more efficient and able to deploy easier. And you need to make them work with practitioners' work cycles. So typically developing a model takes many months. We need to make sure that we inject interpretability early on and not just at the end of training. And all of these are undersaturated. So it's definitely, yeah, the hype is real. <laughs> yeah. 